you know, the, the first time I got up in front of a group of people like this uh, to talk about God was one of the first times I realized that I probably was not a Christian. Uh, that might sound like a weird or a funny thing to say, but um, years ago I was a part of a Christian group, maybe similar to the one that you're a part of, and uh, one night a group of us got together and said, well, let's have a gathering and let's all share our stories of, um, of God's grace. Christians sometimes call that their testimonies. And so that's what we did. A group of us got together. It felt a little bit like this. And uh, I figured, well, I, I was raised in a Christian home, so they said, well, who would like to share their experience of God's grace first? So I figured, well, I'll do it. I was raised in a Christian home. So I got up in front of a group of people. There were less spotlights, but it felt very similar to this. And I got up and I explained uh, clinically and accurately about Jesus. I got up and I was able to talk about the fact that Jesus came and Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and you know, I believed in Jesus when I was a little, and you, so you should believe in Jesus too, and I explained in a sort of a straightforward, clinical, perhaps accurate way from Sunday school. Anyway, what happened was, is that I'll never forget, right after me, uh, see, a young woman got up and, and, and she shared about the grace of God through tears. And, and, and she trembled as she talked about the love of Jesus Christ and the grace of God for her. And she talked about sin in a way that she could not believe that she was ransomed and, and healed and restored and forgiven. And she rejoiced and she said, and I am a child of God. And that moment was very helpful to me in becoming a Christian. Because the contrast was felt exposing to me in what I lacked. It was as if I got up in front of a group of people and I was explaining to them that honey was sweet. And she followed after me and shared almost a sense of its sweetness. There's a, there's a difference. It was as if I got up and I was explaining to people and telling them, you should be amazed at God's grace. But she came up and demonstrated her amazement at the grace of God. And see, I grew up in such a way where I very much relate to Jonah because I had right doctrine. But for a long time, uh, I want to tell you that that doctrine was not alive in my experience. It very much reminds me of the quote that's at the top of page 19. Perhaps you could look there with me. says, we sing about amazing grace, and we speak about amazing grace, but far too often, grace has ceased to amaze us. You know, sadly, we might more truthfully sing of accustomed grace. We have lost the joy and the energy that are experienced when grace seems truly amazing. And I very much relate to that. And friends, this is why... We have one more chapter left in the book of Jonah. This is why we cannot leave this conference before we look and consider carefully the closing act of this wonderful book that we've been studying together. This is the point where we are going to learn in a crystal clear way that the book of Jonah is not primarily about obedience, though it does involve obedience. 
This is the point of the conference where perhaps it's going to click for you that the book of Jonah is not primarily about missions, even though it certainly compels us to missions. This is where we recognize, before we leave here, a a crucial thing for people who have been singing Amazing Grace for three days. We recognize that this book is going to challenge us to whether or not we are alive to the grace of God and whether or not we truly are amazed by grace. It's in Jonah chapter 4. The closing act, the climax, the point that is driven home Before we go home, would you pick up and read with me? Look at page 18. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and, and it perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Heavenly Father, We ask that by your spirit that you would come and that there would be a powerful calling effect on this assembly because of the powerful work of your spirit through these words. Pray you would have mercy on me and on all of us and that we would see wonderful things and our lives would be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So that passage that we just read, it feels a little bit like the original post-credit scene to a movie. You all know what I'm talking about. You know, the, the, the post credit scene when the show's over and then they kind of trick you. We just did it in the highlight reel, actually. But wait, the show's not over. <laughs> There's a post credits scene. And I say that because couldn't Jonah have ended very nicely at chapter 3? We got a little bit longer than Mark saying, you know, just ended in chapter 1. It would have made a really good story if in chapter 3 it said, and... God sent Jonah, Jonah disobeys, well he learns his lesson, Jonah finally goes, and Nineveh repents, roll the credits. 
But rather unexpectedly, chapter 4 puts the lights back on. Because something, I think, tremendous is happening in this passage for us to see. It's actually more clever than a post-credit scene. Right? It's on the bottom of page 18. Something very clever has been going on all throughout the book of Jonah that I don't think you picked up on, but the author is incredibly artistic. But I don't know if you've noticed or picked up that in Jonah, most of the sections come in pairs. So Jonah chapter 1, look at the bottom of page 18. We have Jonah is commissioned to go. And, and you know, he disobeys. That's Jonah chapter 1. Well, wouldn't you know, that has a, a, a pair Because in chapter 3 of Jonah, Jonah is recommissioned and he obeys. So chapter 1 and chapter 3 kind of form a couple. Well, wouldn't you know, right after that, in the second half of chapter 1, we have Jonah interacting with non-Christian sailors or non-believing mariners. Well, there's a a couple to that as well because Jonah, in chapter 3, the second half, we see Jonah last night interacting with non-Christian Ninevites. In chapter 2 of Jonah... Jordan illustrated for us Jonah's grateful prayer. The poetic song from the belly of the fish. Well, wouldn't you know, however, here, this is this next time that Jonah prays, and here we have a Jonah's angry prayer in chapter 4. But the section that we just read, please take note, it is the only part of the entire book that does not have a pair. The book of Jonah is like a funnel that is leading you up to the climax of chapter 4. It doesn't have a partner. God, in this section, is instructing Jonah in compassion. God is teaching him about who he truly is. In other words, God, in this chapter, is trying to restore the amazingness of his grace to this man. So that it's not doctrine, but it's living. Have you ever felt spiritually dry? I think people use that phrase a little bit. I mean, I know all the right answers and stuff, and you know, I know what it's like to know God, but for whatever reason, I just feel kind of meh. Grace of God, whatever. Maybe you know what it's like to leave a Christian conference like this, and you exit, and you go, that was awesome, but you quickly go back to patterns of utter indifference to the Lord Almighty. Well, I have good news for you because God instructs Jonah in the grace of God. And the main point of this section, before we leave, please understand that a vibrant spiritual life, being thrilled by the grace of God, where where you you are moved by what God has done for you, that happens when you perceive God's ongoing merciful pursuit of you. Let me say that again. If you want a vibrant spiritual life, If you want the amazingness of God's grace, then you need to perceive God's ongoing, gracious, merciful pursuit of you. I'm going to walk you through that. The first point on your outline, however, we see is in what I'm calling accustomed grace. Our text begins in chapter 4 with accustomed grace, with Jonah's angry prayer. Please look with me again at verse 1. It's Chapter 4, verse 1, starts with... But, you know, there are a lot of but contrasts in the Bible that are very fantastic and glorious. This is an inglorious one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Please let me remind you that right before this passage and last night, we saw in this text what I want to call large-scale repentance and Christian revival. 
And, and the amazing thing about that is the whole issue of the book was about the Ninevites, or so we thought. But please see that even though the issue with Nineveh is resolved, because they let go of their evil, there's still an issue with Jonah. Stop and think about that for just a second. Jonah is a believer in God. Jonah is somebody who has been used by God. And Jonah in this passage is not delighted in his relationship with God. As a matter of fact, here we have the most striking portrait in the Bible of a joyless, sulking Christian. Isn't that striking? It's so striking, in fact, that it is difficult for me to overstate to you just how strongly verse 1 comes across in the language in which this was written. The original language, that word displeased, it, was, it displeased Jonah in verse 1. Do you know that's the same word that we saw last night that was translated, disaster is coming? Or that word evil, where it says that the Ninevites were evil. And that word anger that we see, Jonah is, is angry in verse 1. It has the connotation of your nose flaring when you're so upset about something. It has the idea of being hot under the collar or burning up because you are so, so upset. So if I were to give another spin of translating verse 1, talk about a verse that's meant to get your attention, it says that when Jonah saw Nineveh repent and he saw his enemies become Christians, it was a disaster to him, a great evil, and it burned him up. So you see what's happened. The Ninevites have let go of their evil. Uh, it, it, the, the sailors, they seemed to repent. The mariners in, in, in the boat. God has let go of disaster. And even the fish is still chilling in the ocean. But Jonah is holding on to something. There's still something eating him alive. It's on your sheets. We see two things happening to this man, which you should stop and pay attention to if you're a believer in Jesus. Number one, he is speaking out in self-righteousness. In that dramatic reading, I was so shocked to hear how Jonah spoke to the Lord. Were you? He reminds me of a kid who's looking at his mom and dad that have provided for him, cared for him, taken care of all of his needs, and that kid grows up to say, no, don't you dare do that or tell me how to live my life. I have a couple of kids of my own, and at some point, they grow to exert their will, that even though you hold up their life, at some point, it's like while you're holding them, they say, no. And Jonah certainly reminds me of that here. Children do that, and apparently children of God do that. In this passage, Jonah is exerting his will in his prayer. Look at verse 2. It says he prayed. He prayed. Now, prayed is only used twice in the whole book, okay? Do you remember the last time Jonah prayed? I want to remind you of what Jonah prayed. It's a throwback to chapter 2. Jonah prayed in chapter 2, quote, salvation belongs to, to, to the Lord. That was Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. That means Jonah's doctrine is, God, you administer your grace. Salvation is of you. But here, he's praying, salvation kind of belongs to me. I am displeased, God, by how you are administering your grace in the world. 
Look at what he says. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful. I knew you were going to do that, God. I knew you were going to forgive those people. I knew you were gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Please examine that verse. Because he is, a, he is accusing God of, I don't, of not administering his grace and justice properly. God, you are not doing what I want you to do. Thank you very much. So see, his doctrine, his doctrine is salvation belongs to the Lord. But what is alive in his experience is I really want salvation to belong to me. And friends, this is different from other places in the Bible where the prophets, quote, complain. Because they complain that someone has broken God's law. Jonah is not upset because anyone has broken God's law. Jonah is upset because someone has broken his law. And see, that's how sinful anger works. That's how self-righteousness bubbles up within you. Are there people you are angry with or struggle with anger towards? Are there people that you would actually struggle with if they became Christians or believers in the one true God? Maybe you say, oh, of course not. I would love it if people, I don't have enemies. Here's another simple diagnostic question. Think about the last time you felt jealous. Do you know what jealousy is? I mean sinful jealousy. It is you saying to God, God, I don't like the way you're administering your grace. I would do a better job at running the world than you, and something about this provokes me. It is speaking out in self-righteousness. And anytime someone does that, here's God's question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you struggle with anger? Fundamentally, do you know anger terminates on God? It's saying, God, I don't like the way you're running the world. And this is Jonah syndrome. This is Jonah's issue. This is what it means to have accustomed grace. He's speaking out in self-righteousness in one minute, but look at this. The next minute, he's pulling back in self-pity. Verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please... Well, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Does anyone find that statement a little funny? Do you know why? Because in chapter 2, he was saved from death, and he was happy. And in chapter 4, four times he says, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, and I really want to die. What does that tell you? This is a Christian person. It says that there is a sort of discouragement out there. And at, it is, at its root, it is not apprehending or savoring the grace of God towards you. It is being so accustomed and presumptuous that you're an insider and you're in the kingdom. There is a joylessness that exists, a self-pity that is dangerous, that looks to God and says, meh, not impressed with your grace. And I don't know if you're more of a speak-out in self-righteousness person. This is an angry speak-out type. Or I don't know if you are a withdraw, self-pity person. I'm just going to collapse and I want to die. But the book of Jonah has you covered. <laughs> and both of those things are a sign of a custom grace. Do you see why God has to pursue this man? Wait, maybe this wasn't about Nineveh all along. Maybe this was God chasing the prophet. The insider whose doctrine is not alive in his experience. So here's the plot twist. Here's the turn. The bulk of our passage is what I'm calling amazing grace. God's gracious pursuit. 
If Jonah is an angry, sulking, joyless Christian, please look at verse 6 and be amazed. Follow along again. Look at your outlines. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That's the same word evil, by the way. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. So it is my opinion that verses 6 through 10 are the main point of the book of Jonah because they have no literary parallel. We've been building and building and building. We've been funneling to this very moment because here's the question that has to be resolved. What does God do with an angry dude who wants to just sit by himself and rot in his bitterness and say, I don't care about you, God. Leave me alone, God. I want to die, God. What does God do to people like that? Here's what he does. He pursues them with his grace. He loves them with an everlasting love. Look, he takes initiative to save people out of their sin. So if you're here and you're spiritually dry, if you've grown up in the church and you think God's grace is boring, you want awe and wonder? You want shock and amazement? You want joy to behold and trembling appreciation for the love of God? Behold our God, it is here. What is God doing? What's there to be amazed at? Look at your sheets. I believe there are at least three things. How do you recapture the wonder of grace? Well, we learn about God. God is schooling us in being amazed. And number one thing we see is his appointing is perfect. His appointing is perfect. Three times in that section I just read to you, God teaches Jonah and his instrument of instruction is his appointing. Did you follow the story there just for a bit? This is like a one-on-one discipleship. God got some time with Jonah. And you know what they talked about? Well, before they talked about anything, we have three times the word appointing. God appointed a plant, number one. God appointed a worm, number two. And number three, God appointed a wind. That's really amazing. And I want you to think about that for a little bit. A friend of mine works as an air traffic controller. Anybody know anything about that job? It's known to be the most stressful job in the world. That's what you need to know about that job because you have an airplane here landing over there and you're in the tower and you have to control all of this absolute madness. Have you ever gone to an airport? It is utter chaos and you have, someone has the job of figuring that out. And I don't envy them and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Moving parts, totally stressful. Maybe you remember your move-in day on campus. I'm not even going to do that, right? Whoever figures that out, that's beyond my pay grade. You have moving part over here and moving part over there, and there's just complexity and people going all over the place. Okay, well, think about the complexity of running the world. And I really mean running, running the world, running everything about the world. Well, the Bible says that God is doing that all the time. In his exercise of his sovereignty and his providential control of all things. But wait, 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 Jonah. Here it says that while God was doing all of that in his providence, in this passage, God took the time to ordain the chemical composition of the soil for a plant to grow up in the heat of the desert so he could bring about a custom-tailored discipleship plan for Jonah. God appointed 
God appointed, God appointed. He appoints happy things, and God appoints hard things. In this passage, God appoints things that bring relief, and God appoints things that bring grief. And all of those things taken together function to get the attention of wayward people. God's providential discipleship plan of Jonah is not that different from his providential discipleship plan of you. Because he exercises his kingly authority, his perfect providence to save people and to help you marvel at his grace. Can you believe it? And just as God does this with Jonah, I want you to think for a minute about God's appointing with you. God has sovereignly brought things into your life, has he not? God has moved you from this place to that. Some of you wonder, how did I even get to my campus? This is my safety school. I didn't even apply. How did I get here? How did I get to this... <laughs> This conference, you know, I look back on my life, and I remember that 25 years ago, I was a lost person. I was lost, not by overt sin, but by covert arrogance and pride. Friends, I was Jonah, and God appointed a brother to walk and to do life with me, and who shared with me the true gospel of grace, that Jesus Christ is only for sinners, and I praise God for that appointment. And, you know, I was, even earlier than that, I was one of those aimless teenager types who had nothing to do but get into trouble. And there are times when God appointed things like my car breaking so I couldn't go to that dumb party and get in trouble. Even before that, man, I was a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> and there were hard things, and there were happy things. Man, I distinctly remember the moment when I was at my wit's end and I opened up a letter on my bed when I was tearfully considering, God, where am I going to go in life? And in it was a letter saying, welcome to Gettysburg College. You've been accepted to come here. And that was God's appointing, God's appointing, and God's appointing. And even before that, God put me in the family that he did, and I endured the sorrows that I did and the joys that I did See, friends, your past is not some accident because we believe in the perfect appointment of God. Things happen in this world by his providence and by his appointing. And God has brought about the people in your life. He's brought about the, brought about the past in your life to bring you to this very place. And here you are. And the more you think about that, and the more you think about his powerful preservation of you, and the more you consider where you could be but you aren't, and you think about that in your relationship with God, the more and more in your soul you feel amazing grace. How could God be so merciful to me? See, his appointing is perfect. His appointing is perfect. Second thing we see is that his word is persistent. His appointing is perfect, but his word is persistent. Glance with me again at verse 4. Then the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Verse 9. Wait, a, it's like instant replay. God said, do you do well to be angry? 
But let me look down at verse 10. And the Lord, the Lord said, I, I want you to stop there and think about how the most powerful people on our planet roll. When powerful people speak, they expect things to happen, right? I'm just going to say it once because I'm the boss. The boss says, get it done. The captain says, make it so. And you do it. And God spoke and creation happened. But do you see what's happening here? Wait a second. God's grace is seen because God is speaking. And he's speaking again and again and again. In other words, Jonah is not left to figure out the providence of God or the appointing of God on his own. God speaks. God is excited to open up his mouth and to direct your life. And his word is persistent here. His word is persistent. His word is piercing. And you got to see the, the uh, use your imagination here to engage with it because Jonah, you see what the author has done? He's hot with anger. His nose is flaring. He is sitting in the desert. And God says, watch this. And God turns up the heat. And look at verse 10. What's the content of God's piercing word? He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and you didn't make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. That is a life-saving measure for Jonah. Do you hear what God is saying? Here is his piercing word that has come to be a life-changing truth. Jonah, you're happy about the fish. Do you remember the fish? You were so happy about the fish. Did you earn that? No, you didn't really earn that. Jonah, you're so happy about the plant. Did you earn that? No, no you, didn't, you didn't really earn that. I'm detecting a pattern, Jonah. You love it when you get saved. You love it when God's grace is poured out on you. But do you see something? Here's the piercing word of God. What makes you happy? What makes you sad? Sad to say, it's all about you. And an inanimate, non-valuable plant and that you did nothing to receive. That you have no claim over that plant whatsoever. You love it. You know why you love it? Because it gives you comfort. That's why you love it. What a piercing word. An invaluable plant. How much more valuable persons. You're not amazed at the grace of God. God's word comes and it goes out like an arrow, persistently and piercingly through his appointments to cut through the noise of life. And here's the question it asks. It asks Jonah and it asks you. You ready for it? Brace yourself. Why do you love the things that you love? Why do you love those things that you love? Another way to ask it, why do you get angry about the things that you get angry? Because anytime you get angry, you're defending something you love, see? God's word is piercing. And I think even the most, most withdrawn and sullen person loves something. And the grace of God is to expose that in your life. If that is being exposed in your life, why do you love the things that you love? God is asking that three times. You will realize that you are a sinner in need of grace, and it will restore the amazingness of God's grace. God's appointing is perfect. God's word is persistent. And number three, his compassion is plentiful. Friends, it gets, it gets even better. Because look at what God says in verse 10. 
He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Now verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. So time out. God's not only doing an argument from lesser to greater here. God is also using this appointing and his speaking to draw a contrast between Jonah, the prophet, the unwilling prophet, and God himself. Look in your packet. I want you to circle that number, 120,000 persons. Do you see that? Yeah, that's a lot of humans. This past summer, my family and I went on, we went on vacation. I get skittish around a lot of humans. <laughs> we arrive at this place that we were staying at, and we were with family members and stuff, which we love, but we quickly realized that the place that we reserved and the pictures online didn't really match reality, right? So there basically were all these people in this small amount of space, and we didn't really realize it, so there were a ton of family members, I think it was like 13 to 15 or so of us, crammed into this tiny, like, two-bedroom house. It was super awkward. The doors didn't have locks on them. The bathroom doors didn't have locks on them. I got walked in on a couple of times by a couple of kids. I was seething in anger. And we went back home, and Megan and I said, yo, as far as vacation, we need to think through that. Because um, that was far too many persons, and the more and more persons, the more and more problems, right? That's just how it goes. The more people, at least the way I roll, is when my annoyance increases in a proportional way. Isn't that true? The more people you add into a situation, the more easily it is to get annoyed. The more people on a plane, the worse the flight goes. Maybe you're terrified to come to this conference because you're like, people, oh no, people. So I want you again to look and to circle that word, 120,000, because here's the point. God is different from me. The more and more and more sinners you lump together, what happens? The more and more and more God is stirred towards compassion. Hallelujah, God is not like me. Yes, God's judgment is real. Do not misunderstand me. I am not saying God delights in sin. But as there is an aggregate and an increase in people, apparently his compassion is so plentiful that he overflows with increasing compassion the more and more people there are. Because God labors over people. See, that's the point. You didn't labor over the plant. God labors over people. God causes people to grow. And God is full of compassion. And he is ready today to receive those who turn to him. And that is truly amazing. And what a humbling lesson that should cause our hearts to sing the grace of God. John Bunyan, look at that quote, it's in your packet. John Bunyan said, there is nothing in heaven or earth that can so awe the heart as the grace of God. It is that which makes a man fear. It is that which makes a man tremble. It is that which makes a man bow and bend and break to pieces. Nothing that has that majesty. And commanding greatness in and upon the hearts of the sons of men as the grace of God. 
And God is saying, I'm different from you, Jonah. This is a discontinuity moment. Because think about it. God, uh, Jonah is looking at all these sinners. 120,000 people. And where is he sitting? Outside of the city. Outside of the city. The sulking, angry prophet. But you know the plot twist of redemptive history? Do you know the plot twist of divine irony is that centuries later, there's another prophet who comes. There's another prophet who came willingly, and he's sitting outside, and he's looking at a city. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to talk about God is different from Jonah? Look at Matthew 23. It's on your, in your packet. Jesus says, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But, but you weren't willing. And in Luke 19, it says, And when Jesus drew near to the city, and when Jesus saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Friends, do you hear what God is saying to you in the book of Jonah? Jonah is looking at a city. And you know what? He's looking at a city that listened to him, and he's sulking. But Jesus Christ looked at the city that rejected him, and Jesus wept. Jonah is sitting in the heat, arms folded, and he is hot with anger. But brothers and sisters, please recognize that Jesus is arms open and he is tender towards sinners. God's compassion is plentiful. And friends, the Bible's message is clear. No matter how far gone you are, the grace of God is more. See, you need God, but you don't want God. God does not need you, but God wants you. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. Jonah gets schooled in compassion. And I wonder if anyone here as well needs to take a similar class. <laughs> Do you see God's abounding compassion? Do you see his piercing word? Have you ever marveled at his perfect appointments in your life? If maybe today for the first time you'll actually be able to sing amazing grace and mean it. So part one to this narrative we saw a custom grace, Jonah's grumpy prayer. Act two in this passage is, uh, is amazing grace. It's God's gracious pursuit. There's one last thing we have to close and we have to talk about very, very briefly. Here's the cliffhanger. We've been alluding to it all weekend. The last thing on your outline is extending grace. The author's hanging question. The author's hanging question. Please look at verse 11 again and let's close with this. And should not I pity that great city, God speaking, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. What an awkward ending to a book. <laughs> Do you know that there are only two books of the Bible that end with a question? 
And both of them are to Nineveh, oddly enough. It's a very deliberate literary move. Why would an author end a book with a question? Well, I'll tell you. The book ends on a question, and I think in a deliberate, awkward, kind of cliffhanger way, so that the reader would know that this book was never about Jonah. See how you feel a little bit set up here? Like, what did Jonah say? Did Jonah repent? We have no idea. Did Jonah say, thanks God, I get it now? And then Jonah prayed again. We have no idea. The author has deliberately ended the book this way so that you have to answer the question in a moment of self-reflection. That's why. So the question is, should I not have compassion on people who do not know their right hand from their left? That's the hanging question. That's the awkward end to the book. And certainly, a right hand from their left, what an interesting way to talk about wicked people. The Bible says there are sins of defiance. The Bible says that there are sins of ignorance. But here's the question, and what an appropriate one for us to end on. If you have received the grace of God, will you extend the grace of God? If you have received the love of God, will you live out the love of God? There are people that you will interact with today who have other systems of faith. There are people of other religions. There are people back on your campuses that you head to. You have annoying coworkers. You have annoying family members. You might be the annoying family member. <laughs> do, do you have compassion and love for other people? Do your friends describe you as someone who extends the grace of God, or are you gen generally the angry, grumpy Christian around others? What a challenging end to the book. Do you have affection and love for people who ordinarily would annoy you? Are there people you're not drawn to that you can live out the grace of God by being stirred with the compassion of God and maybe opening up your mouth to speak the word of God? Oh, another way to ask that is to end where we started. Is your doctrine alive in your experience? Do you know the grace of God? Is it evidence in your life? Should I not pity that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? See, the easiest way to know if you're amazed at God's grace is how willing are you to extend that grace to others? Would you take a few moments? Would you pray? Would you think about these things? After which I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray. Our great God, you are high and lifted up. You are the one who is sovereign and you are the one who is king. And God, we have been those people often, I certainly have been, who have complained and gotten angry at your gracious appointing. God, I thank you for your providence to bring me to this point in my life. And I thank you for your providence to bring my friends here to this conference. I pray we would not ignore the piercing, persistent, word of God that has spoken to us today.
God, would we leave here energized, amazed, inspired, but truly captivated by what you have done for us. Would the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his spirit be with us all, we ask in your name.